Fear the Walking Dead, the podcast, an unofficial discussion of the news and events surrounding Fear the Walking Dead with Quinn Warner, Stephen Payne, Bruce McGee. Uh, I'm Steve Payne. And I'm Bruce McGee. And this is Fear the Walking Dead, a podcast. Quinn couldn't join us this week, but hopefully she'll be back aboard next week. So there is a sad silence this week. <clears throat> That's right. We'll have to limp along again. Um, and this one um, was... Um, Let's get the title of it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Ouroboros, of course, I knew that, which is uh, the ancient symbol of the snake that swallows itself. Um, and for us, the um, the interest, and we will have spoilers. So if you haven't <coughs> seen this episode, uh, stop and uh, come back when you finish. Also, um, we finally get the tie-in between uh, Fear the Walking Dead. And they're online uh, mini-episodes of uh, Flight 462. And uh, in this week, Flight 462 has finally crashed. And so we'll talk about that um, again, you know, as we as we move through it. What do you think of this episode? Uh, I thought this was another very plot-driven <laughs> episode. Yeah. Uh, and I wrote this down. It's, a, it's almost like an action movie with its thrill sequences and last-minute rescues. Right. It looked just like an action film. It looked like, and I appreciate this about it, but it had the values of a big screen uh, production, really. Well, and... Um, as far as I action movies Did go. you watch Talking Dead after? I watched a little bit of it because I was... I had to cut away because I was busy. They had um, an, a spot on how they did those distant shots, and they... You know, drone technology has reached the point now that you can load nice cameras on mm-hmm. a drone, and it goes up in the air, and it could take these, you know... Big, you know, widescreen, like a panoramic. Yes, panoramic shots of. uh, Can those things hover like a helicopter? Yeah, the ones that are. This one had the helicopter kind of four of them. Yeah, Yeah. and uh, it could hover or it could move any way they wanted to, and they were able to um, get these really sophisticated shots of the plane (laughs) on the beach. And Flight Four Fifty Two has crashed, and if I, I went back and watched. You know, there were like one-minute episodes, and there were, I think, 16 of them. And I watched the whole thing, which you can find online. And I think at some point, one of the um, flight attendants said, um, you know, somebody was saying, let's talk to the cockpit. And I think she said, we've been trying. There's nobody answering. And, of course, you can't get in because of these really... Hardened. It's a hardened cockpit. Right. Post-9-11. Right. Post-9-11, you can't break in those things. So, at some point, the plane crashes, and they're lucky that... Crashes on the seashore and not out to sea, but it makes me wonder if that first group of um, yeah, people in a lifeboat from last mm-hmm. week, if they were flight four sixty two. I wondered that too. Well, and this had maybe not unintentionally, and I don't know if they brought this up on the the Talking Dead uh, broadcast afterward, but this had echoes of the very first entry in the original Planet of the Apes series. Where Taylor, the Charlton Heston character, rides up on the ruins of the Statue of Liberty, and he says, "Damn oh, you!" Yeah, that was damn. the end. Right, it's at the end. But I, 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 it's, I it, thought it's, you said it was. Well, but it, the the beach scene has right, the right, right. Of that. You know, damn you, damn you all the hell. You know, only this time we didn't blow ourselves up. Right, we, we we didn't use the Alpha Omega bomb, but still, you have the the ruins of society in effect on that seashore. Um, it's a very iconic kind of a scene in film, you know, particularly modern right. film. So, uh, yeah, it's like uh, watching the demise of civilization. Right. You see, instead of um, an airplane shiny and sitting on the tarmac, you see a part of an airplane and people, you know, paddling to get back to shore and then just luggage scattered mm-hmm. around. And in fact, that's a metaphor for paddling to try to, or the paddling is trying to recreate some kind of a new society in the wake of the apocalypse. Right. And, um, you know, Strand, of course doesn't have any truck with that sort of stuff so <laughs> the, the good people the people still living by the old rules let's say try to um pull the raft along behind the boat at the end of the episode he mm-hmm. just goes and cuts the cord. <laughs> cuts, it, cuts the cord on it and 
you know, if well, they had people, really I'm, I'm, wanted to save them, they should have known Strand, you know, because um, the barber, what's his name? Oh, Viego. Yeah. That's Ruben Blattis' character. Right. There's a, well, he... He distrusts him, and he keeps an eye on him whenever necessary. Well, I so. love, in my keeping with the usual lines out of the film that are really memorable, there's a great line that Viego says, we take care of ourselves. Right. <laughs> sort of that, that is sort of the libertarian mindset. It's not a communitarian, it's a libertarian mindset. Yeah, and, um, you know, I've wondered what the underlying theory of society is on this show from time to time. Like, is it libertarian? Or are we going to try to find a community? But, but you know, overall It's a people, clash of, of ideologies, I would argue. Wouldn't you? Right, I would say that too. But overall, people that are totally by themselves go nuts mm-hmm. in this, um, you know, in, in The Walking Dead. And we haven't been here that long. But, you know, after people have been alone too long, something goes wrong with them. So there is some kind of basic social need that humans have, especially in the zombie apocalypse. I wonder, too, and you can comment on this where I can't, because, again, I don't know the original series, but I wrote this down about the DIY aspect of the of the characters and the, the uh, stories and their, and, their, and their existence. It's, you know, it, not only can you not survive without having a community, but you can't survive without being resourceful. Right. They have to create their own society, essentially out of ex, ex nihilo, or whatever it's called, out of nothing. Well, and partly what they're doing is scavenging off the right, dead off the society. Right, Let's, um, you know, and... and, and uh, that's a, that is that a, only lasts so long. Well, and that's a commonplace in apocalyptic literature, anyhow. Right, running out of supplies, like, uh, let's go scavenge through these... Um, and, you know, it's the drug addict that functions as le- like their medic. You know, <laughs> and their pharmacist. What the, yeah, <laughs> what the good drugs are and what the bad drugs are. And uh, so uh, Ophelia, she's the one that's wounded, right? Mm-hmm. The daughter of uh, Reuben. And, um, you know, she needs antibiotics or she's not going to make it. And there's enough for now, but there's not going to be enough for next time. And I think that's partly why... Um, strand cut off the raft because obviously that kid needs drugs if he's going to survive and I'm it, sure Strand it, didn't want that to come about that he would well, get the, some of their drugs. Yeah, well, the kid's a liability. Right. And I like this. The other characters, they're starting to be a conflict where they're starting to, I guess, stand up to him. I don't know, but they're, they're starting to right. question his Especially authority. Especially Annie. Is that her name? Power. Is she the teacher? Yeah. What's, yeah. Is that her name? That sounds right. Check it out because I've got something by her where she says, we're just going to eat each other alive. We have mm-hmm. to go back to get this thing done. And that line is so powerful in capturing not just this episode, but that series, right? Right. The episode, we're going to eat each other alive. Is Madison. Horrible. Madison is her name. She was Amy on Treme. You know, she's, <laughs> she's, they're capturing the essence of the, of, the, of the title of this episode about the Ouroboros. Right. We'll that, eat ourselves. But really, it's the, it's the society eating itself alive. And it's, you know, it's even reflected. I'm going to be curious to see what they say specifically caused the disease. The, the Walker disease. I think it's just a virus. But I, I mean, recall I mean is it a designer virus or is it a, you see what I'm getting at? Or is it or a synthetic did it, thing? Did it evolve or, or did yeah. humans make it? Right. It would be more, you know, fitting if humans did it because in these kind of things, it's usually we've done it to ourselves somehow. You know, like the end mm-hmm. of um, Planet of the Apes. Right. Damn you all to hell and... Uh, doesn't he say before that? Is that where he says, too, you finally did it? Right. You, you did fin- it. Right. Yeah, you we did it. did it. Yeah. I like what they did with Chris and especially Alicia this week. You know, she's always um, been kind of the quiet mouse for the last year and a half, or last season and the first two episodes of this season. Um, you know, like. She let him drag her away from her boyfriend and uh, when he was dying. You know, they just left him there to die. Remember this mm-hmm. first or second mm-hmm. episode? Uh, so this time, she's the one that wants to go to shore and scavenge and get stuff. So it's like, um, you know, she's stepping up at this point. It kind of makes it a, to use for the for the listeners, a kind of a, 
a $25 word out of literary analysis, but it's, it makes this thing kind of a bildungsroman for those youth characters because it is it is a, a, a classical. And that's a coming a no, of age? Yes, a novel of apprenticeship or right. coming of age, but really it doesn't have to be just a novel. It can be applied to TV fiction, a screenplay, a short story, whatever else. So it's just a piece of fiction that describes or chronicles a coming of age of some young person. But you could even say a society, because this is a new society that's essentially trying to be reborn amidst all this death, right? Right. Uh, it's kind of the, the old phoenix image, where the thing throws itself, builds and throws itself on its own funeral pyre, burns itself, and then comes back. Well, and um, if you've seen the 100, she was Lexa, the, uh, the queen of uh, Tree Crew. Um, and that's another post-apocalyptic narrative, right? Yes, yes. Is it world. still running or what? Oh, yeah. Uh, she's dead now, so she can spend all of her time <laughs> with her family or with Fear the Walking Dead. <laughs> right, she's got a new contract. <laughs> she's got a new contract. But she was on both series for a while. They overlap because they're both short runs. But um, <clears throat> anyway, in that one, she's a total badass. So we know that the actress is uh, capable of... Playing that role. Right, living up to that if they'll... You know, writer better. And she got to kill her first zombie. Right, right. And her stepbrother, Chris, got to kill his first person. He killed zombies last week. <laughs> but this week he has to kill a guy whose back is severed and sticking out, you know, the bones and... um the guy's saying, help me, and by help me, he means kill me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, it's uh, a mercy killing. Yeah, it is. Which I guess really all of the killings, or nearly all of the killings on this show, I guess are mercy killings, aren't they? So far, you'll get to killing people because they're bad. You right. certainly have that in The Walking Dead. Like, they're a threat, and right. you've got to kill them. Um, but we don't really have a lot of that yet, unless you count Victor Strand trying to kill the two people on the raft. Yeah, yeah. They may or may not make it, but it won't be thanks to him. She, the young woman that's Asian, uh, she looks as though she's going to come back based on what they were saying. I would like it if she did. It would be kind of pointless to have that whole... It'd be Yeah, exactly. Fear well, the Walking Dead, it's Flight a, 462. It's a, um, it would be a cheat. That's what it's called in fiction. But it would be a cheat to bring her in and not do anything with her. And like just have that. her on for like 10 minutes. Exactly. Right. It's just, it's a real, I mean, and, and it's a cheap way to wring emotion out of the viewers instead of introducing her and building her character up and then maybe doing something to her. Right. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, and there's already advisable. a bad habit. Michelle Ang, she played Alex. Yeah, she sounded Australian or something the way she was talking. I don't know where she's from, but... Yeah, Australian show Neighbors, I figured that. Fortune, The Tribe. When was she? 83. So she's about 30 years old, a little older. Um, a great career ahead of her. Yeah, you know, and I think she could play a significant role. Why would you have a whole parallel series and then bring them together and then just take them away for good? That's what I'm saying. You know, I mean, uh, the, the the smart writer, whether it's a screenwriter, novelist, whoever knows how to introduce characters, and then let you invest emotional interest in those characters and not kill them off just just for the you know sake of gratuitous killing. Right. And that's a real cheap kind of a way to get emotion out of people. Yeah, and Walking Dead has a bad habit of the special episode where all of a sudden this character gets to develop themselves, and you see. Uh, like Beth, you know, Beth was the kind of quiet mouse for several years, and she tried to kill herself at one point, and after that she just, she would occasionally sing, and it was her job to hold the baby. Um, but finally, you know, she and Daryl are off by themselves in the woods, getting drunk and stuff, and then, you know, you see her character develop as she's kidnapped and taken to a high-rise <coughs> hospital, and then right when, you know, she's really kind of peaked, she dies. You know, it's about a two or three show arc to get her, get her to where you really like her now, and then they kill her off. And you know, sometimes it's even a quicker arc than that. They'll have like one show where you start to see the character develop and blossom. Mm-hmm. And okay, now we're fattening you up for the kill, right? Um, do they do that very frequently, or not too terribly? But it happens from time to time, and uh, I don't like it when it does. Because like There's you say, a- you need the arc. Like when they pull. kill Herschel off, you feel a real 
pain about that because he's like one of the central characters of the show at that point. There is a there's a pulp adventure series within the main series of Operator Five, who's a very much an American version of James Bond, but he predates him. It's 1934 when he comes along, or 33. Yeah, so he's way earlier than Bond, and. Deep into the series, about two or three years in, they, about three years in, they create a series called the, or the series within the series. It's an art we would say today called the Purple Invasion. But he's always defending America from these foreign and domestic uh, menaces. Right. Well, in this one, America's finally invaded, so it gives you a villain that can, you, they use for fifteen different novels. I mean, there's yeah. fifteen full. And that was based on like we had the Red Menace from mm-hmm. uh, Russia. What was it they called the the Yellow Peril? Was China? Yeah, this, uh, is, this seems to be a Nazi-esque, kind of a fascistic sort of a menace. But the thing is, they actually invade the U.S. Then what they wind up doing, of course, is introducing characters only to kill them off after one book. Right. And it, again, it's a cheap way to wring emotion out of the out of the viewers, or in this case, out of readers. Right. I, I've never liked series that'll have somebody's best friend show up that you've never heard of before. Right, right. My best friend from the old days, they're on the show about five minutes, and this is usually a detective or police show. They get killed, and then, you know, our tormented hero has to pursue justice in this case. Exactly. (laughs) I don't know them. I don't care. You know, for me, it's just another, you know, case to solve. Right, right. uh, They don't make you love these people. See, um, the central cast, you do want them to be around long enough that you feel like you have a relationship with them. Yeah, it's uh, it, it does. It frankly lends a, a note of realism to a series, right? Right. I think it does. And I loved the way that they introduced um, Alex because you see her walking over the sand dune and you mm-hmm, think it might mm-hmm. be Chris. Mm-hmm. He's even calling Chris, Chris, and she gets up close and you've got to run, they're coming, and then she just keeps going. <laughs> right, right, right. That was really kind of yeah, I know, wanna, a great... And, I and it's Alex. Oh, it's Alex from 462. Great. So it's that plane. This is when we know it's that plane that's crashed. Of course, there's a little intro at the beginning that shows her in a boat. So we already knew, but this confirms it for, you know... This actually ties the two, the webisodes and the episodes together. There, I'm going to talk about before we get to the the final action sequence in the film where they're trying to escape the island or the coast or whatever, and there's the swarm of zombies coming over the horizon. Right. So before we get to that, uh, how did you think about how they built the sense of ominousness and and just terror really at the very you know beginning of this when they're the the character goes aboard the plane, the ruins of the plane, the fuselage, right. not the fuselage, but the cabin, I guess. And that's Chris. You know, he's going into the plane. It's and, pretty um, scary. I thought. It is, and, and then, the music is. If you noticed, I mean, the soundtracks of these things are pretty pretty good at building tension. And then when the guy jumps, you think he's uh, one of the uh, infected, but he's actually this wounded guy. Right. Help right. me, help me, and so okay, how can I help him and not get bitten by these other two uh, infected? Yeah, it's a. Uh, it was a very primitive, almost. Um, you know, he piece, picks up a piece of metal that's. Uh, it looks kind of like a hockey, mm-hmm. the head of a hockey stick, but mm-hmm. it's um, it's just some metal off the plane. It's almost, um, I know, two thousand one, a space odyssey. You know, at the very beginning when the apes are killing themselves with uh, bones right, from right. the obelisk. It's right. Like, you know, this reversion to the most it's, primitive it's sort of weapon. Yeah. It's, it's atavism. Uh, well, this, this whole series, that's one of the recurring motifs in the, in the series is atavism. We've lost our ability to operate these planes now. All we can use them for is parts to make weapons. Right. And yeah, some, some the crude is sort of... Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a famous... Cannibalize the plane the way they cannibalize each other. And, 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 and cannibalize the society. Well, and it, it's, a, it's a warning of how we're right now cannibalizing the earth itself. Right. You know, and, uh, it's um, this extraction model that's the, the very source of consumer capitalism. Sci-fi right. monsters are always... They express our deepest fears. Right. And they... So they address... Directly or indirectly, usually, problems that we actually have. Like the Godzilla flicks. I mean, those really are ostensibly about 
these ancient or these these mutated sorts of reptilian creatures, but they're really about the fear of the bomb. Well, of course, you know, you've, you've got so this forth. little lizard on an island right. and a bomb blows up on it and it turns it into... Super uh, giant, you know. Godzilla. Like a, like a T-Rex kind of a character. He's got green bre- uh, dragon breath instead of <laughs> yellow because it's now radioactive. Right, right. So. It's, it's the fear of the bomb. Right. The whole thing is the fear of the bomb, you know. Um, and it's it's a little less heavy-handed than some things, but still, it's that's what's going on here. So it ultimately would make sense if they'd made this a human creation from a laboratory. Mm-hmm. Something that got as, loose. Right, as opposed to... Bird flu got, you know, it, had got it has a random earmarks. mutation. It has the earmarks in it being a military deal. Right. A military kind of a project. I mean, you know, uh, you know, one of the problems with chemical, uh, what most people would call gas warfare in World War One, was that it could always backfire on the user. Uh, yeah. Like be- mustard gas, yeah, mustard gas, chlorine gas, anything like that. Later on, sarin, you know, by the time of World War II, but those things can, you know, you get a good gust of wind that blows it back on you, and you have it. Well, and there are two other TV shows with this theme right now, which is 12 Monkeys. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the... Uh, I've seen the film, the original the film. The film? Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same basic idea that there's this, there's this genetically modified, engineered virus that's going to kill us all. Mm-hmm. And the other one is containment, and... Um, that too is uh, it's being spread by um, Islamic terrorist who has uh, contaminated himself, and then he goes on a plane and gets everybody else sick, and then it starts spreading from there. So he's their patient zero. So is it? D- does that uh, involve time travel like the film does? Uh, Twelve Monkeys. Yes, the Twelve Monkeys does. Yeah, uh, containment is not. It's a straight. It's really Virus on the loose kind of a story. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of sci-fi, but it's kind of not, you know, because we could do that right now. It's just a regular flu virus that's been modified genetically to kill people. And this one not only kills them, it brings them back. And that's mm-hmm. what makes the zombies different from every other kind, is that it brings back the people after they've died. Yeah, it almost makes, it makes death inevitable. Um, and... I mean, it really is, to use a terrible pun, it's the ultimate kind of fatalism, right? There's no, right now, there is no way to escape the zombie apocalypse. Right. Because you too, when you die, you will come back as one. Unless if you have been shot in the head or whatever. Right. Or had your, I guess, or been decapitated or whatever. Yeah, you have to take measures, you know, either you or somebody else to keep you from coming and, and speaking of that, so... Do we want to talk about that action sequence right now? Sure. <laughs> uh, this brings up an interesting question. When is it Chris who disguises himself as a zombie? Or is that no? no that's that's uh, the other one. Um, Nick. Nick. Okay. Yeah, and that's something that they figured out early on in Walking Dead too: is that you can disguise yourself from zombies by covering yourself in blood and guts, um, and they accept you as a zombie. Right. So that. Implies so it's to me our freshness got... that attracts them. If we smell like zombies, then they won't be. Okay, I was wondering that. So, does it imply cognition or more instinct that the zombies recognize you? More instinct, just you know, so recognize proper food by smell. You know, that's yeah. something any animal. Can right, do. right. So they are animalistic. Oh yeah, there's nothing human about them left. That's one thing that they've established over and over. Okay, let's talk about Strand for a minute, and um, what do you think he's up to? Like, is he telling them the truth by saying, you know, I've got this safe house in the Baja. Right, Baja, California, that's where they're heading. Down south of San San Diego. Or is he totally lying? Or is it a combination of truth and lie, which I tend to think myself? Like, there probably is a house, but there's probably more to it than he's telling them. Yeah, he's he's one of those characters you keep peeling back more and you find more. But what's at the core, you know? Um, They're good at building. This is classic mystery stuff here, you know? Well, they had a wrestler on the after show, and he was talking about it, and he said... uh, Strand is the classic subtle heel, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where, you know, he's not just a bad guy, bad guy, like, um, you know, 
totally chewing up the scenery. Right, right. But he's subtle, so you can't really trust what he's up to. And he, you know, the more that he tells people to trust him, the less that you do. And obviously, why? Because he just chopped the rope off to these people that right, right. they could have and helped. I'm, I'm really fascinated too by who is on who was on the other end of that that satellite phone conversation. Right, who's going to be uh-huh. there waiting? Is it Abigail? Is it the, the real Abigail and not just a boat, but a person named Abigail? Or, or is he know? like a drug lord? Yeah, you know, he could be, His sure. money is mysterious. We don't know where it came from. So, you know, his ties to the Baja uh, in Mexico mm-hmm. make you wonder, well, you know, what's he got going down there? Yeah, he is a really interesting character, and he's <laughs> there's a a slightly softer edged kind of a character like this in fiction, the, the Picaro, the rogue right. character. Uh, this is this character because a lot of times those rogues are somewhat comedic. Yes. This guy is not particularly comedic. <laughs> if you watch Once Upon a Time Captain Hook mm-hmm. uh, that in that series plays that role. He's the he's the um swashbuckling right. rogue who um cracks jokes and well, or, or um, the Reavers, the William Faulkner novel. That's an old Scottish word. A Reaver is a Scottish word for a rogue. It's a dialectical word. And, and, but also the, the proto-rogue. And, and Well, I guess, you know, Jacob in, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Jacob is a Picaro. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, Odysseus really is. Oh, definitely, too, to, yeah. To a trickster. Exactly, exactly. And then you have Lazario de Tormes with the, the Spanish proto-novel that predates Don Quixote. He is a rogue as well. He's a rogue. So the the character keeps coming back because it's, frankly, an interesting type. Well, I mean, look at how much time we've spent trying to figure him out. Exactly. Nobody sits around trying to analyze Curtis that much. We do a little bit, but... um, And his role this week was interesting because he's got to put those mechanical skills to work. Um... You know, the boat mm-hmm. is water-cooled, and they have an intake for the water, and it got clogged with, of course, a zombie! Well, and that's the DIY, that emphasizes the DIY. Right, um, we've got to figure it out ourselves, or we're going exactly. to be stranded. Well, yeah. and, 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 and we've got to do the same on a broader scale with the new society, right? Right, Because if it's there a, will be one. It, it, yeah, well, they've got one from what you said in the parent series. It's one such as it is. But it's got to be all of DIY. It's got right. to be all do-it-yourself stuff. Uh, we've got to, as people say today, MacGyverizing things. My great-grandfather would uh, take a raft, build a raft over the winter and take it down the river and sell it for the lumber. And come back, he had carried his buckboard down on the raft. and He would shop for the entire year. And the first two things he would buy were a couple of pieces of sheet metal that he would put mm-hmm, in the bottom mm-hmm. of the carriage if he needed a horseshoe or a nail or a hinge or anything metal through that next year he would make it out of that metal he had bought right, right. so he was a blacksmith he was his own blacksmith um imagine us trying to you and me trying to make a hinge or anything you know uh well, in fact, imagine, imagine most people trying to do it, yeah. particularly so-called survivalists and right. preppers. How many of them can... Oh, 99% of them wouldn't be able to, I can tell you, um, because you have to be a real jack-of-all-trades. And my, His son, my grandfather, used to say you could judge a town, you know, how good a town it was going to be by uh, how good their blacksmith was. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was his dad, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and if you've got a bad blacksmith, you aren't going to have... Everything in town's going to be pretty crummy because he's the one that has to make it all. Right, right. And we're going to have to go back to that. We need blacksmiths. We need farmers. We need um, cobblers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got to go back to... <laughs> we may need saddlers to make saddles for horses. Well, yeah. I mean, really. I mean, know. we're going to run out of gas. There's no more being pumped. So, yeah, we need to be... It's a finite resource. Right. Uh-huh. So it's back to kind of Stone Age, maybe well, a little least, bit better. Yeah, at least 17th, 18th century, yeah. 19th century technology. Right. We can go back a couple of hundred years. Let's hope it does that because, if, right. honestly, if you look at the uh, post-apocalyptic novel Ridley Walker, they are, after all the bombs have gone off, and it's set in England about 
I think a thousand or so years after the bombs, and they're only at the <coughs> at the stage of maybe a medieval. I want to say a medieval level of technology, maybe even Bronze Age technology. So right. it's very crude. It's very very crude, and what they're scavenging for is the relics of the past to be able to repurpose them. Right, and if these um, these folks are not able to figure out a way to be in a community with other people without <clears throat> immediately leaping to killing one another, mm-hmm. it is going to get back to the Stone Age. Absolutely. Oh, by the way, uh, did you notice the callback to Pulp Fiction this week? When he's asking um, Travis, when um, uh, Strand is asking, or he wants Travis to fix the um, the filter, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, get the zombie out and work on the filter, and uh, he wants it now, and he's just being real curt with him, and uh, Travis is like, I'm not your, you know, your servant. You know, you can ask politely. Just as easily as you can bark orders, and I'm sorry. Would you pretty please fix the yeah. effing engine? You know, like, uh, that's a direct thing from Mister Pulp Fiction. It's an allusion to Mister Wolf on Pulp Fiction, who shows up <laughs> and he's trying to hurry, and John Travolta and um, uh, Jules. Um, oh, who played Jules? Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson, who is, by um, the way, a big comic book fan. Oh, I think it's either he or Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, one of those guys is like a major league comic book fan, yeah. But anyway, um, it's a shame they couldn't get him for this film for this series. Uh, yeah, this would have been great. He would have been. He would have been a. He would have been a. You know, bad zombie killer. Oh, you know, absolutely. He would have gotten them. But they. Um, what was I saying? Oh, oh! In that original, they had they needed to clean up a body, and Mister Wolf comes in, and John Travolta doesn't like the way he's barking orders. So, if I, you know, if I speak fast, it's because I think fast, and because we don't have much time, so I'm pretty pleased with sugar on it. Uh, clean the effing car, you know, and uh, so, uh, out you go, you know, and so, uh, you know, it was a direct callback to that. I, I assume it had to be on purpose, right? I mean, it's too famous to Absolutely. Scene. Yeah, I mean, they, they, these things... These writers know the work of other writers, right? That, and that that goes to um, and you know, Pulp Fiction is awesome writing. That's what makes it great. Is what's his name? Uh, Stanley Fish, the reader response theorist. You know that all literature is is engaged in a grand is it a, the grand conversation idea of one work of literature is in conversation with another, and right? Another, and another. What and, they and call the, intertextuality, right? And the and the readers help, the, and I believe this personally that the readers help to create the meaning of a text, right? Uh, it's not just authored by a person; it's authored by the culture. And, uh, you know, these writers have heard Pulp Fiction, and they, you know, they're interacting with, with it that way. So Strand is kind of in the position of being Mister Wolf, which he kind of is. Mm-hmm. You know, he's this cool guy wearing a suit in a really desperate situation. He seems to keep his cool, and you know, he thinks in a cold, calculated way, and doesn't let his emotions run off with him. Although I do wonder about chopping the line if that was him letting his emotions get the better of him. It could be. Because it seemed like he he um, was brooding on it for a few minutes. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. He grabs his knife. I'm, you know, I'm going to be the boss on this boat. I'll show her. Right. And, you know, Kim Dickinson, uh, Madison... Has already warned him, you know, if you try that with any of my family, I'm going to throw you overboard. Yeah, this is that growing sort of uh, questioning of his of his status, right? Right. Uh, which well, is uh, inevitable if you think about, again, this is... And, and you think about this in a real apocalypse, that would be inevitable. You'd have all these warring factions going at each other to see who would finally have primacy over everybody else, right? Well, and, you know... It would magnify every worst trait or every every good trait of human nature. They've actually debated that specifically on Walking Dead series. They've had enough years at it, you know, for a while. You know, the first season it was the tension between Rick and Shane and who's going to be the leader. And right now that tension seems to be between Alicia... 
uh, not Alicia, between Madison and Strand as to who's going to be the boss of this boat. Um, and then eventually Shane died, you know, Rick had to kill him and um, in order to save his own life. Well, then for a while Rick was the head honcho, and then eventually he stepped aside, turned it over to a council. They had a formal council of several of the, uh, you know, longer lasting members of the community. <laughs> but then, pretty much without... <laughs> More cynically, the ones whose contracts were re- renewed. <laughs> right, exactly. And then after that, they went back to the basic strongman model, although usually he would do stuff in consultation. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't usually just... If other people speak up, then he will listen to them. Like, after uh, they torched... Terminus, he wanted to kill everybody. They don't get to live. And there were enough people in the little group that, oh, we've already killed a lot of them and we've He's blown up their place. Himself. He's a law unto himself. One, but he listens to them. But then the next week, they kidnap one of the members of the group and eat his leg. So, you know, it's their way of saying, we should have listened to Rick. We should have killed them all. Because if they hadn't killed them all, I mean, if they had killed them all, then they wouldn't still be around to do bad things now. This um, this brings up, again, a real topic that we're always ridiculing on our big podcast, <laughs> the Louisiana Anthology podcast, and it's namely the idea that the, the fundamental reason why libertarianism will not work, right? Because people aren't individuals out on their own. We don't exist right. that way in nature. You know, if you go right. back, we're... Uh, it's a species well, about 200,000 years old. Until the last 10,000 years, if you saw people, it was in a tribe. And then it became in a city. If you see a loner, that's a rare kind of individual right. that well, exists it, by themselves. It encourages, it, it's fundamentally built on what? It's built on violence. The libertarian idea is built on violence because who's going to have the most goods? The it's, person that can take the most. It's, it's might makes right. That's right. the ethic of the libertarian system is might makes right. It's got nothing to do with a system of laws or anything, everything to do with the strong man, the, the you know, Uncle Liberty type And character. that's why Strand had to cut the rope, to show that he's the man in charge, right? Mm-hmm. This is my boat, I'm in charge, I make the rules, you don't get to say... And he knows his authority is under question. Mm-hmm. If it's questioned, then it disappears. Because it's just a boat, which may or may not be his. It may be that distinction with sociologists that talk about the difference in power and authority. Power, again, is mm-hmm. fundamentally based in violence. It's based in coercion. If, uh, if you look at authority, it's based in persuasion. Right. So he's what is he about? He's about power. He's about naked power. If you go back to the old Andy Griffiths show, he doesn't rely on his gun. He doesn't even carry it, unless it's unusual circumstance. He relies on his badge. Right, exactly. The idea that he can reason with people based on their acceptance of his mm-hmm. authority. Mm-hmm. He is That's a very British idea, by the way. The Bobbies, mm-hmm. the London police historically, except maybe I guess nowadays for a few detectives, but the beat cops don't carry a firearm. Well I remember uh I remember a uh, a sheriff's deputy that I knew when I was growing up that normally didn't carry a gun. He carried um you know, a baseball bat in his trunk. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> in case, you know, you might need to knock some heads, but he didn't think there'd be anybody out there in Lincoln Parish that he'd need to shoot. Maybe he had a gun back there, too, but he didn't wear one. Um, okay, so what else happened this week? Let's see. Because I we another... You know, last week we had more character development. And like you say, this week is plot driven. Yeah, it's it's I wonder if this is not gonna be their model of building their stories. It's gonna be Some weeks one, some weeks another. Yeah, some some weeks a hybrid of the two. That's the only I mean, what else can you do? You either make it character driven or plot driven or or combine the two maybe. Right. Um And that's if you think about it too. And I like and something we ought to talk about more is not just the characters and the plot, but the support that they use to build character and plot, like the lighting, 
the uh, soundtracks, right? Right. Which are quite effective. Like, 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 for example, the lighting, you go aboard the plane, the ruins of the plane, and it's got this very gloomy sort of air hovering around. Right. And it really reflects that sense of menace. You know something terrible is about and to And there's happen. the claustrophobic feeling yeah. you get in a plane anyway, and it's more so because stuff's torn out of the walls and... You know, you know, it's and the oxygen mass are dangling, and it's down. dark. You know, mm-hmm. and it's got that gl- uh, scary feeling. But yeah, everything's closing in on you, and you feel like it's got a gothic kind of air. Yeah, it, it's very gothic. Instead, or quasi-gothic, it would be easy to imagine those being cobwebs in some old attic, right? You know? The old dark house mystery, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, wall poles, you know, old gothic stories, and uh, you know, the monk. Uh, with, uh, what was his name, Monk Lewis, that wrote the thing, The Monk, and I had to read that in grad school. I see. Yeah, but it's this, this old gothic, you know, the, the air of the uncanny. Right, Edgar Allan Poe. You right, know, yeah, he's the American like master of that. And Stephen King, now nowadays, is the master of that kind of kind of stuff. But you see that, like I said, with the, the lighting is good, but the, I, I was sitting there listening to the soundtrack, and I thought the soundtrack was particularly effective. Yeah, it was. It's got that goose fleshy sort of feel to it, you know. You know it, something's going to happen. It makes you tense while right. you're, um, while nothing's happening. You're you're anticipating something happening, which is almost more scary than when the zombies actually come over the hill and they're after you because you're in the action then. Don't we know that in classical times that that the uh, classical uh, playwrights, Aeschylus and various others, that they that they would have like a little uh, an instrumentalist or two or three off to the side playing music while the plays would unfold. Oh, the chorus, the whole play was about like opera. It was all sung. So yeah, they would have instruments and uh, so they did have a music, essentially a score, a music sung score. and danced. So the chorus would sing and dance. None of which we have today. None of those scores survive. For say, it's no. like, it like the tunes or the right. harmonies and melodies. But we do know that they were accompanied. In effect, well, yeah, and and uh, like I say. Theater at that time was what we would call opera today. You yeah. know, if we saw something like that, oh, that's opera. Um, <laughs> What's opera, Doc? <laughs> the famous Bugs Bunny. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <I like that> <laughs> <one>. <laughs> Kill the rabbit. <laughs> Kill the rabbit. Kill the rabbit. <laughs> so, but yeah, I think, I think the other elements do come together pretty well to make make these things pretty solvable. And so, we had plenty of gross-out stuff, especially yeah. um, Travis trying to clean out the yeah. zombie guts from the, from the uh, filtration system. Right. You know, that was just nasty. The ultimate in plumbing. <laughs> the ultimate in plumbing. You know, and I don't think he had a glove on when he was reaching his hand. No, it was kind of, those... this kind of gobbets of flesh. And right. It's pretty hideous. Um, well, and later on with the, the gross out in the final sequence... With the the blood all over the face, that's actually pretty good makeup. Oh, job. Nick! Yeah, yeah, how'd you like it when uh, Nick figures out that he's invisible to zombies and he turns around and faces that one, and they just look at each other. Right, and he snarls at him. I got, I got tickled at that. Actually, he was snarling and hissing at the other at the zombie. Yeah, the real zombie. So you know, it was kind of one of those. And you said they've already they, they've already established that they can do that in the original series. Yeah, and they do it from time to time. It's not a it's not a trick they do every week, but right. well, it, would get old. Then, it would get old. There's another thing you can do, which um, Michonne figured out, and that is um, you can uh, neuter a couple of zombies, like chop off their arms and knock out their teeth, and you know make it so they can't break your skin, and then put you know chains on them and use them as uh, you can have them carry your stuff, but they also make you invisible to zombies. Because you get between them, and then everybody else assumes you're a z- zombie too. Do they? Um, they I, I, do they give off an, an odor or something? Oh, or? Zombies are rotting flesh. So, they, so. I, mean, so the, I mean, they really are. So this is like the real, the realistic kind of thing where they would be smelling pretty putrid. Right. I mean, really, that's it's putrefaction or whatever. They would smell pretty putrid. Uh, yeah, it is a stinky world, my friend. <laughs> we, we are living in in the zombie apocalypse. Wow. Um, Definitely not a place we want to visit. And, and again, people that think that they're survivalists, you know, all these people that are going out and buying the, the dehydrated food and the freeze-dried food and this, that, and the other, and they probably wouldn't make it. <laughs> well, you can only stay in your bunker for so long, then you have to come out. Do we know in the original series if it's just 
infected flesh that infects other flesh, or could it be other things? Like if you handled something that were tainted by... I think it's in the air because everybody has it. It's It's or whatever. It's like, you know, apparently fungus is always among us. It's always (laughs) floating around. It's on us all the time. And when your immune system is weakened, then it can activate. But it's always there. It's not something you have to go out and catch. But uh, we did talk last week about if you got to an island like Hawaii that mm-hmm. would somehow manage, because it's so far from other right, land. Right, right. It's isolated, in effect. Yeah. Like or we, Australia. Theoretically, the virus couldn't travel there except on people, but the first time a person arrives, like, you know, from the mainland, then the virus is here. Well, and I wonder if it could go dormant like some things can, which means then, too, uh, could you go, to, like, to one of the poles, like to the North or South Pole? You know, go to the Arctic, go to the Antarctic. What would happen then? Right. Uh, that would be interesting. And I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming they haven't done that in the original series. And, but no. Certainly, we're not deep enough into this one for them to figure that. But Z Nation has a polar uh, military base. One guy has survived, and he tries to get on the radio every now and then, and you know, keep people tied together. Who is that now? Z Nation. It's another, it's a fast zombie show. Zombies there go faster and sometimes have a little more humanity depending on what kind of zombie it is. Walking Dead is more of your classic Night of the Living Dead kind of zombie. Yeah, it's, it's really, I can't get away from the terror of this thing. Imagine the entire Earth or what we seem, what seems to be the entire Earth infected like this the whole earth that we know about right Right, right. everything that we've uh, been able to find so i wonder about ophelia you know last year she was quite active in saving the group you know she she was friends with that soldier that eventually got them the information that would save their lives so far this season she's just been shot you know um but with the moxicillin, is that what um, right. Nick found for her? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe she'll start to do a little more next week. I'm, I'm interested to see, too, how we see the uh, how, how it unfolds. Different characters in different situations. What strengths of theirs come into... Right. Come into... Come to the fore, in effect. I mean, we you know, we had Travis, you know, repairing the plumbing. Right. And Alicia scavenging. Right. You know, and... She's and 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 the 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 son uh, was it Nick? But anyhow, disguising himself as a zombie. I keep I keep getting those two kids confused. Nick and Chris and Chris. Yeah. At least they're stepbrothers, right? Right. And so that shows a degree of resourcefulness about that kid. You think about that. That took some pretty smart thinking. Uh, you know, well, he got covered accidentally. Right. You know, he fell in the crab pit right. with that gross crab but zombie. But he, he's but that's you know the other fell on him, but. Then he figures out, now that I'm covered with this stuff, they don't seem to notice me. Exactly. And he that, tests it out. Right. That's, a, that, that's the nature He's of science. He's a scientist. Exactly. Yes. That's inductive reasoning right there. And experiment. And absolutely. That's the very basis of it. You know, observation and you observe a phenomenon and then you try to craft a hypothesis that accounts for the phenomenon and then you go and test the thing. Get your results. Which he all did while he was surrounded by zombies. Uh. <laughs> Zombie science. But really, it, 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 it shows, that's a very humanistic kind of a thing. It shows, again, in crises, we see the real person. I wonder if he will fall back into the drugs at some point. Because, you know, there is a, he's physically detoxed, but there's a mental component. Right, there's a psychological right. sort of dependency. I want to be high, you right, know, right. and... Uh, so at some point, is he going to be able to not be able to? They'll to have say to deal no. with that. I feel feel sure, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it's too good a plot thread not to pick up at some time. They'll, now, I hope they don't cheese it up in the sense of having hovering over a bunch of drugs. Like, do I do it? Do I not? And, oh well, they may have to do that. Um, I want it to be a real crisis and not just a, again something that's a cheap way right. to bring emotion from the viewers. Well, and it's not like he doesn't have something he could take now. You know, all those painkillers they find. Get your nice Percocet going. (laughs) Daddy had that stuff. That's some bad stuff. 
Well, I see we've been going close to an hour. Do you have anything else you want to point out before we close it down? I'm really keen to see what's going to happen with Strand. I want to yeah. know more about him, but I want to know more about his own connections. Right. And this was the... If he was really brooding, and this is kind of him lashing out, this is the first time we've seen him kind of lose it. Mm-hmm. And it's when somebody else, possibly because it's a woman, you know, there are a lot of guys like that that uh, can't stand to be questioned by a female. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's not only that he's losing his place as the leader of the the crew, but he's being questioned by a woman. Oh, my goodness. So uh, we'll see if that comes out more, or if I'm just reading into it. You know, because he doesn't say anything. He just looks cranky. Yeah, there's a... Well, you know, equally mysterious, we haven't said anything about this before we cut away, but uh, Diego's character, Ruben Blades' character, is very right. mysterious in his own way. Daniel Salazar? Yes, yes, he's very mysterious. And he's, you know, that guy's a top-flight actor. He's had some, some other roles. He's a, he's a good actor. So I'm very interested to see what else we're going to find out about him. He's, I've got a feeling he's extraordinarily tough. Yeah, and we got to see it last season when he took that guy's skin off of his arm, you know, and he's quite comfortable with torturing Right. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty ruthless. Um, right, ruthless is the word. It's not that he wants to do that, no. but if he feels he needs to, he can. The ends justify the means under certain yeah. circumstances. You do what you have to do. Right. All right, well, we'll keep an eye on Daniel and Strand and our other characters, and you do too, and we'll be and, back next week. keep looking over your shoulder. <laughs> right, watch out. They could be behind you. <laughs> well, for the um, Fear of the Walking Dead, a podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. I'm Steve Payne. We want to thank all of you for listening and for uh, watching this latest episode. We hope that you'll come back, watch next week, and listen to the latest edition of Fear of the Walking Dead, a podcast. Bye for now.